Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at XNateXGrayX. We are continuing this further investigation of the threads of the MC2 as they continue to exist in the Marvel Universe. And I was feeling like perhaps at the outset, today's episode, which features two classic what-ifs from the second volume, which sees no fucking proper reprints. And let me tell you how we're going to get into that. But we're also then going to be taking a look at Web Warriors 1 through 11, as well as The Amazing Spider-Man number one with the prequel story that kicks everything off. And I originally said to myself, this is going to be you know such a thin discussion about the actual mc2 content and it's going to be so heavy on the sort of wacky stuff we've been looking at afterward and no there's a weird amount of mc2 worth discussing in these issues in a way that feels so so hard to pin down exactly because one of the things that the mc2 is frequently missing out on is that connective tissue to now and while i wouldn't say the things that we're going to talk about have exact connective tissue to now there's things about the mc2 DNA that have written themselves throughout fandom in an inerexable way. I mean, ultimately, Web Warriors to me is an incredibly important piece of the puzzle when we talk about the further life of Mayday Parker. Not literally, not just literally because it's the continuation of her story, but some of the things that have been really important to me for understanding the possibilities for May going forward. If we treat May like she is a viable character which I still believe that she is Web Warriors kind of for me is the proof of concept that I've been needing since we kind of since we rolled into Spectacular Spider-Man. I very much understand where you're coming from with that. I also find myself eager to explore and discuss what it is about the MC2's timeline that I had not quite realized and just how it completely affects my understanding. Like for instance, Spider-Girl started in 1998 in January, but Tom DeFalco would go on to leave Amazing Spider-Man later that year with an issue that makes reference to Spider-Girl. And the more I investigated some of the proper 616 threads of Spider-Girl's ongoing narrative mystery and why she never clicks, I come back to a couple of really key things. Now, of course, as always, we're going to start this thing off with a look at what we're talking about and then some relevant figures on what we're discussing. We're going to take a look at a single page of What If 20 from 1990. Now, we don't actually have the page. We just have a bit of art that was reused in What If 34 across the top. And not to sell short a humor mags single page story, but I'm not too sure that we missed out on any canon that we can't come to understand from What If 34 in 1992. This February 1992 issue marks the first time there is a semi-reasonable length story featuring 
a child of Spider-Man. Now, okay, this is a ridiculous story about a spider-like child that's very cute. It's very, you know, Alf, um, Mr. It's Bogus. a horrifying monster. It is. I mean, it's disgusting, but it's meant to be that sort of like silly 80s yes. kind of snorks kind of cartooning. To be perfectly clear, everybody, it is a baby-sized spider that is has a little bit of human features to it, like in the face region, but it's like a giant, just a giant spider. It's a giant, I don't know how else to describe it. It's furry. It's a monster. But it's cartoonish. Yes. It's the only thing I want to point out. This is not like Peach Momoko, dis- you know, designing some sort of nightmare baby that ripped Mary Jane apart as it was born into this world. It is very Mad Magazine for sure. Yeah. And that does lead us to some really interesting discussion. And from there, we're going to take a look at the next canonical appearances of Mayday Parker after Spider-Verse. And it turns out I read that Spider-Verse Secret Wars shit for nothing. <laughs> not that it was shit. It just really, oh man, Secret Wars was not everybody's timing. You know what I mean? So we're going to take a look at all 11 issues of Web Warriors, which ran from November of 2015 to September of 2016, which was all kicked off by Amazing Spider-Man number one from October of 2015, which had an A story by Dan Slott and Giuseppe Comuncoli, though we're only going to be focusing on the Web Warriors kickoff. And to that end, I want to point out that the What Ifs were predominantly created by a gentleman named Darren Uck, who did everything on the entire single-page story and then seven-page story, with the exception of Colors on the original and the second story, both by Renee Wittestetter. And then the inks on the six-page story were done by Sam De La Rosa. Now, I didn't go back to get sales figures on a story from 1990 <laughs> and a story from 1992 because I felt that there was so little value to be gained from understanding those numbers without doing a further investigation of what numbers might have been like around then and how that trended. And I didn't think what was essentially meant to be sort of a silly story that we brought up was worth the amount of time it would take to set that kind of context up, but rather the story serves to tell itself. From there, Mike Costa, who has been doing all of the Web Warrior stuff for us for quite some time, is going to be writing all 12 stories we're going to take a look at featuring the team. Now, he is joined by penciler David Baldon, who is no stranger to Access for Podcast, one of our first interviews way back when we expanded to include interview coverage. He is responsible for the pencils on every single issue, with the exception of issue 10, where he shares the spotlight with Jay Fogut. Now, Jay Fogut also inks a bit on the title, but the inkers include Scott Hanna, John Livesey, Walden Wong, Victor Alabaza, Terry Pallet, Roberto Poggi, Mark Deerling, John Dell, and Lorenzo Ruggiero. The colorists include Jason Keith, Andrew Crossley, Matt Yaki, Will Quintana, Antonio Fabela, Rachelle Rosenberg, and, Rich- and Andres Mosa. All of the letters provided throughout are by Joe Caramagna, except again, What If had Darren Ock and I Did Miss the Letters on the second story are by Brad K. Joyce. Whew, sometimes these credits just like wind me a little bit. <laughs> yeah. But back to what we're looking at. Amazing Spider-Man, which was released during the Secret Wars is kind of running a little bit long, not in a bad way. No one's in trouble. We're not yelling at anybody, but Secret Wars, you ran a little long. This came out the same time as issue six, and it did beat issue six's sales figures. In fact, this was the number two selling book for the month, only behind the Iron Man relaunch following Secret Wars, which was doom. But this Amazing Spider-Man issue from October of 2015 sold a fucking staggering 245,000 copies. That's just a lot of copies, dude. 
dude that's like third most or fourth most we've ever talked about on the show. And, that's you know, it's so interesting because there are so many Spider-Man books all the time and they are constantly being relaunched. The Even if there's an event, even if there's synergy, the idea that Spider-Man really can just, with a debut, with a number one, it almost doesn't matter what it's about or what the marketing is. He can just power that engine at the start. I agree. And I think that's partially why there was so much work put into this first issue. I just want to say, while we're only going to cover the one story, because only the one story is really pertinent to what we were doing, I know that I, as a reader, and I'm actually really only reading these in as far as I'm kind of covering them for this show, so I'm not even reading everything, but I'm really starting to feel like all of these oversized issues that are meant to get me to read other things, they wind up being just a little bit of everything so that nothing tastes like anything. And that doesn't satisfy me at this point, which is, for me, a little bit frustrating when I go back in. You know, this issue actually includes a story launching Spider-Man 2099 number one, Silk number one, Spider-Woman number one. It just feels like a lot. Especially because this is not the X office like we are not getting a unified spider family that will repeatedly cross over in ways that make sense to us it just kind of is a make your own plate buffet and that's cool my first read through i honestly just didn't care at all but my second read through i did my ears sort of poked up a little bit more at what i was seeing from the other spider titles but it's having that kind of grab bag and variety thing really only works if you have a pretty significant investment in what could be happening with all those characters. If you really have nothing, this just isn't enough time to sell you on why you might want to read Cindy Moon. Completely agreed. I felt very much like I just didn't understand why this felt necessary. I get why. I mean, really. And I'm not trying to be silly. I understand that it's to get people to read these titles, but I don't know that a sort of sliced out selection of just almost a commercial, I don't know. And I think part of what I'm talking about is a little bit more that the Web Warriors story didn't move me quite as much. I did read the whole thing and did find a lot of it worth celebrating, you know, hey, what's up, gay wedding? But I definitely find that 245,000 copies of this issue is a really large number. I would be fascinated to know if on Marvel's end, when they do something like this, if they have, I mean, I'm sure they do, but I'd be fascinated to know what the discussion is around, okay, if we we do this one issue that tells us about these five stories, what's going to be a number from Web Warriors number one that makes us feel like we did our job with this story in Amazing Spider-Man? Well, to that end, we do see some numbers on that first issue that probably made Marvel very happy. But subsequently, I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Web Warriors starts at about 63,000 and ends at 16,000, which is like literally the exact trajectory of Spider-Girl across 11 years. It's just 11 issues. And actually, the descent is just about the same. We kick things off at about 62,000 copies, but then the second issue falls to 31,000 copies. Second issue, half as much. Third issue is 25. The fourth issue sees sales of about 20,000 copies. We then see a rapid decline, 18,000, 17,000, 16,000. 
both issues 8 and 9 sell roughly 15,000 copies each before issue 10 dips into the 14,000s. But at least issue 11 did rebound for its finale at about 17,000 copies or so. And, you know, it's a shame because everybody there was pretty talented. I can see why the book maybe had trouble finding its footing and there was definitely some visual choices that probably made it a little hard to read. But you could see that a pretty core audience of about 16,000 people said, yeah, this is for me. I've realized this is where I have a lot of trouble talking about this because I know that I'm not being really objective in my perspective on wanting to read future issues because I can't speak to my motivation to actually read them outside of wanting to make this podcast with you and wanting to have this stuff to talk about. I always feel like, oh, like, okay, this is, I mean, I really liked issue number one and I really like the setup for this story. I'm going to be pretty positive on it, but I, can I honestly say that if I didn't know that I was doing this podcast and really wanted to just investigate a Spider-Man title that I would have been happy with this issue number one and would have continued? This is where it starts to feel a little bit muddy and it's something that I've decided that I want to start doing in other corners of the Marvel Universe that I'm not covering for a podcast that I have no other reason to do it but to pick a point that is a number one for something or maybe even something like this where you know you get this grab bag and you can go to a bunch of different stories and then actually see if I have any investment in the stories that come after that or if it's just one of those things where you know when you when you want to cover it for a podcast or for whatever reason you get yourself excited because this is what you're going to be talking about either way well let's talk about get yourself excited (laughs) because when I found this you were very kind to engage on it (laughs) Spidey Baby is fucking hideous and when I say it's cute I mean like it's cute but like it's fucking hideous and this is important because my thesis behind this whole thing has to do with why Mayday also can't get old so the year is 1990 and Spider-Man has been around for almost 30 years in fact anybody who started out reading Spider-Man as a child cannot be younger reasonably than 35 years old or so at this point right because you might have memories of being five and I'm not trying to say that anybody doesn't have memories but like in terms of how these books survived and the cultural understanding of what a comic book is if somebody had been reading from childhood to adulthood in 1990 they could have been reading Spider-Man for just under 30 years and to that end they would be about 35 and by 1990s standards of the age of getting married the age of having children the idea of the nuclear family and the sort of generally projected at like a white guy with disposable income kind of you know model of Marvel at that point and comics in general I have a hard time thinking anything but it is so strange that the first time they really address Spider-Man having a child it's something this fucking goofy because the story in the full six page story version sees Mary Jane have a modeling gig I think and so Spider-Man has to watch Spidey Baby and he calls the Sandman who's like no I won't babysit again I'd rather go back to prison so Spider-Man brings the baby on Spideying and it's just kind of a send up of this real trope in superhero comics but the fact that they could only do it as a send up I think speaks to the eternal pain of the fact that Spider-Man can't stay grown up and I think that that we get Mayday in a what if what ifs always being like the world would be completely different if and the what if is what if Spider-Man had a daughter and like she grew 
up that that is such a alternate universe concept that we do this what if and then launch a whole other universe out of it speaks to you know what you're saying being pretty much spot on and that's when i decided to do a little bit more work into the marvel origins of mayday parker and how many other what ifs do things like this and the fact that like nobody ever saw the i mean okay i understand what i'm about to say but it's it's kind of weird that they never were like there's the dead baby right it's like they just never showed it and the editors kept being like the baby has either passed away or is in a complicated situation where you will never see the baby ever again and i am baffled because it's almost like having spider-man go through the trials of adulthood marriage and then ultimately having a child but then not having the child and having him quote-unquote grow out of being spider-man but then have to grow back into it because ben riley died it was like they said ben riley could be the new young spider-man but then said never mind it's got to be spider-man only spider-man can be spider-man and ben riley's over there like no also spider-man and they're like "Mm, also spider-man that guy just is spider-man the manager and co-manager thing yeah it really is and i am really thinking about it in terms of how that changes the discussion and the perspective on what we should be thinking about how long it took to get a mayday story and why mayday has to stay in high school for the rest of time mayday is trapped by being invented with the name girl and i think maybe now things could be different because things are different now but i think it might take a cultural iteration that people recognize first for the change to occur i am really thinking about the fact that spider-man got married to mary jane and then almost had a kid and then undo the kid and retired and then undid the retiring and then undid the marriage and we just keep seeing peter parker go back to the most sellable time and peter parker was able to find a happy older place in life he is 30 sure and he can do science job or can do teach job or can sometimes do picture job but he's always doing something now he's a man in the workforce and i think mayday parker is as the daughter of spider-man always going to have to be younger than spider-man from a corporate standpoint and i'd love to be proven wrong because we're really starting to see more companies recognize that people can keep track of characters when they have the same name it's not that big a deal but i am fascinated by the sort of peter pan syndrome foisted on the spider family maybe that's why the hunters all want to eat them because the inheritors are like look how young they always stay (laughs) you know now is kind of an interesting time to be talking about this because we have this beloved teenage spider-man in mcu tom holland peter parker and does that motivate now the main spider-man needing to be a little bit younger on the one hand i can see that argument i also think because of the spider-verse animated film and the upcoming sequel and the fact that the most recent spider-man movie just gave us multiversal spider-man maybe this franchise is on a trajectory now where we can accept a primary continuity peter parker that is significantly older the fact that we also have miles morales who is a young spider-man who's kind of you know got his whole life ahead of him as it were like is i think much more representative of what young people today are interested in and peter parker as we know him he's kind of i think after these many generations of young people that grew up and became adults following spider-man he might be at the place where he almost has to really get to 30 or above and hover 
hover over there for quite some time until there's a really big sea change. There's enough young versions of Spider-Man, there's enough young Spider-People, and they represent a more diverse body of youth that young people today are going to be more interested in, that it almost necessitates really Peter Parker no longer being that person, and instead becoming somebody who is more recognizable to a larger demographic in, you know, adults ages 30 to 75 now who have all watched this person keep going from being a teenager to almost making it to adulthood to going back to being a young person. And I wonder if that speaks to the experience of wanting to be younger yourself, this idea of the commodification of youth. But it's really funny. Something we were talking about in a recent recording is that what was once an acceptable age by cultural standards has really moved. We're really starting to see a lot more, and I kind of mean this like unironically, but a lot more, you know, 50 is the new 40. And, you know, with the right physician, 55 is the new 38. And you can really do some amazing things to keep yourself fit if you have the access, the means, the financial stability. Certainly not trying to say it's easy to stay young, but you can be a younger 55 today than you could be. 42 when the MC2 started. And we are seeing a redefinition of what constitutes young, old, what allows for age and transformative property of of self and when does sexy stop. And I think this whole experiment of eternally unaging Peter Parker is kind of missing out on it. You don't need Peter Parker to become 55 today, but we are seeing some heroes that we all sort of thought would never age out of the Marvel Universe, maybe start to have a little bit more trouble selling books. Hawkeye is not a mainstay the way he once was. And we're seeing a whole lot more affection for characters like Silk and Spider-Gwen, who is now Night Spider, than we traditionally see sometimes for the newest relaunch of Spider-Woman. So I do wonder if we've reached the point where maybe just maybe the next time they take a step with Peter Parker, we can assume it's a little bit more realistic for goodsies. And that's the proper term. (laughs) For goodsies, of course. And I feel like you and I are sort of reflective in that demographic that has aged into significant adulthood, not yet at an age where we're looking to return to youth and look at comics to reflect what we remember about our youth, but actually looking to identify a version of ourself that is older and has matured and has been through trials in life since entering adulthood at 18 and wants to see characters that reflect that. It doesn't always have to mean settling down with a wife and kids, but it does mean that you are unambiguously into adulthood, definitely out of high school, out of college, having a career. You know, for the 75-year-olds who have been reading Spider-Man for a really long time, they might be interested in reliving youth through the comic, but I feel like that is a dwindling demographic with the way that comics are written today versus how nostalgia plays into how older people read them that I don't think that the goal is to really capture that audience and as you get younger but still into adulthood I think you find more and more people that want to see real adult versions of a character especially one that they recognize and grew up with and who again I think we are a great example I love reading about Miles Morales I love reading about Spider-Gwen I like that they're teenagers I just also want to see 
adults in the mix too. Spider-Man Peter Parker is a great example. Jessica Drew is another really good example. If those two are in their 30s and, you know, having successful superhero careers and life, I'm very interested in reading that. And then I can go to other characters who are supposed to be young and who aren't, you know, 30 years worth of aging flip-flopping. Those are ones that I can follow as teenagers and say, you know, look at these characters existing side by side, reflecting youth as we know it today and adulthood as we know it today. Because I'm also not trying to say any statement of like, I don't want to feel old. No, I mean, I think I'm, as I've gotten older, I think I'm doing a little bit better. I'm pretty happy to have gotten older. Good for me. You know, it just sort of proves that nothing has killed me yet. (laughs) But the bigger thing about it is I don't like that I would be older than Scott Summers. Not because, no, I can no, more like, I like that Scott Summers is someone to look up to, even when it's because he's the bad example. I like the idea that he and Wolverine are going to get somehow closer in age and that gap will transform their relationship because otherwise it's just kind of frozen. I like the idea that if you call Jean Grey Marvel Girl now, you're being kind of a misogynist and that she has the right to declare that for herself. And this idea that, you know, 20-something years ago, 30-something years ago, that Spider-Girl was such a foreign idea that the closest we could get was this silly joke. And we had to write out his marriage and write out his child, which now it all turns out is, and we're going to get there, but I'm really aware of how culture was resistant to May Day because they were resistant to letting Peter Parker grow up. And at the same time, Peter Parker growing up is a central tenet of the MCU, or sorry, is a central tenant of MC2. And it's tough because the sales aren't there to say so many people were clamoring for it. But there was this core that really did like this idea, this universe, one where the heroes that we knew had grown up and were into adulthood and maybe starting to retire from superhero dumb and therefore the next generation was coming up. I just feel like there has to be something there. And I believe that because that has value, Mayday growing, I'm not even saying at this point she needs to be, you know, a full-on adult, but from the time that she started to today, I have to believe she should at least be in college. Because it sells her experience short. I want to see characters live a breath of life and make decisions, and there's something really fascinating about being able to see characters that paralleled your own growth experience and then contrast that with the idea that the character will become something else at some other point in canon. I will use Simpsons and the fact that they keep updating how Homer and Marge met to be more in line with that period of time. I'm actually okay with that. That's not damaging in any way because very few people have continuously uninterruptedly watched The Simpsons and you can just go with whatever one fits your nostalgia. But, you know, the first time I smoked weed, I was like, I don't know, 15 and it was a couple of friends and somebody had some so we just smoked some weed you know what I mean the first time I drank was like 14 at my would-be best friend's house years later because uh, his dad left liquor everywhere I don't know that with the legalization of cannabis in so many locations we're going to see quite as many stories that match my experience of of smoking egg. I also think not that kids today are way more responsible but there is certainly less of a mystification behind alcohol and there's a you know we have a whole lot more songs that are you know alcohol sponsored so the cultural experience of alcohol while not true of everybody is a little bit more culturally accepted
acceptable and less taboo in a way that's like, I must do that as early as possible, which is something that we actually see kids saying at a, you know, higher rate. It's also not as rebellious in action now to do it. Yeah, exactly. So if you are looking for teenage rebellion, this is no longer really the the way to keep up with that. I think what you have said about wanting to see your own struggles kind of mirrored in the characters that we know, I, I think about somebody like Scott Summers and you're telling me the life that that man has had and you still think he's significantly younger than me? I get exhausted going to the DMV. <laughs> I need to believe that after all he has been through, like somehow we're, we're a little bit comparable <laughs> and that all of that experience translates into enough age that we are at least peers if he can't be, you know, significantly older than me after all this time where he was. Because the real struggle as a reader for me becomes how do I continue to engage with a character that lacks one of the necessary elements of my dimension? There is a fundamental that is, I will get older until one day I stop. And I can accept that my fictional characters in what is meant to be an ongoing universe filled with thousands of incredible characters. Like, I really get how they can't stay dead realistically. All right, so we can't have that in common, sure. But they can age. And I don't need them to age in like direct real time like John Constantine in Hellblazer. But if they could continue to age in a way that allows them to be more accessible to me as a man who has aged and has grown from my experiences. Because when you say they can't have aged, they just can't have grown from those experiences. And you really sell your own character line short when you decide that they're not capable of growing up. And I believe that that is a huge component behind the earlier failure of Spider-Girl. And then by that point, it was too late as these sorts of projects have become more common and more popular and old manifying everything is the hot shit at Marvel. We could have had a really cool Spider-Girl that was the old man Peter's daughter character and could have gotten her own book from there. But it's an unfortunate reality of the way that society controls art with you know social acceptability also some of spider girl was just bad but there's definitely a component to it that involves society's vice grip on the commodification of youth as eternal beauty i also think that starting with gen x but i really feel like it becomes a thing with millennials something like comic books really stops being oh only people with peter pan syndrome only people who never grow up only people who don't live in the real world read comic books. If you're over 45 and you're still reading comics, you are either an eternal man-child or just so trapped in nostalgia that there's no hope for you. Dumb retro baby. (laughs) We've seen this medium become as respectable as any other literary medium. And I think in that we are now seeing a real need to reckon with if that is the case, aging does have to be a part of it. And that has to be factored into stories. And I don't think we are at such a point where it can't ever happen. I It's obviously going to be at an enormously different scale, but I think we will continue to see characters age. I don't think we're going to hit that same point that we hit with the original generation of comic book readers, where the reset became necessary for reasons of trying to pull in other people, for hitting that nostalgia button. I think the aging now is the thing that is actually going to get new readers to understand why comics are interesting and old readers continuing to follow because they're seeing that reflection. And I'm also just ready to say goodbye to some characters. Yes. Like, there's characters that don't need to keep being brought back.
back. And I really felt that in Spider-Girl many times when somebody would show up and I'd be like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, um, what's his what's his HGH? Mindworm? You know, <laughs> he fucking, damn, so built, bro. And then that face, oh God. Looks like the ass of a Triceratops. And like he, or like uh, just really real bad days. And he didn't need to show up here. Uh, he just, I could have just had a new psychic. You created so fucking many new psychics, you couldn't have used one? Yeah. I just want to say for one second that it is a shame that we don't have the sort of connection with the rest of the material and the rest of these terrific characters. We definitely cared about Cindy Moon and connected with her. I have talked several times about my little brick Miguel O'Hara from one of my Spidey Lego sets. I I wish I cared enough about any of these characters to like read what is evidently going to be a really short fucking volume <laughs> because we just rebooted Spider-Man. Remember, we just read 7 through 15. And now here we are at a new number one. The same year 15 came out. I don't know. I don't. I just don't know enough about Spider-Man stuff overall to comment on what feels very weird to me. If this were a time in the X universe, I would have a lot more idea of who the writers were, what the broader plot things were, what the readership was struggling with that needed to be contended with. I really just don't don't have any of that here. I only know that we seem to be trying to expand multiversely for Spider-Man, obviously. And I'm still not really sure if it is that thing that I was talking about, which is like we have to create a spider family so that this franchise can become broader and have appeal to more people while also still having a core central thing that you can always return to so that Spider-Man people have a Spider-Man thing to get into. I just, I have none of that here in ways that I love because I know too much about the X-Men. There are things like a reboot like this that I don't know how to properly put into context. I think the only real context that I have for it is not counting like, oh, we're switching to a large hundred, you know, accepting that. This is the fourth volume of Amazing Spider-Man ever. And the third volume is the one that we read issues seven through 15 of. So no matter what we went from you know 400 something issues and then with the next volume picking up and running i think to like 600 something or 700 you know several hundred issues we find ourselves at a volume that can't have lasted more than 20 issues followed by a volume that i don't think lasts more than like 30 or 40 issues it's an interesting point of dynamic transformation for spider-man as a line which i think went from being like the sturdy book to being as erratic as the comic medium itself. I like that description. Now, beyond that, I am really interested in things here, right? I am not at all trying to be like, you know, forget this. I'm not interested. But I do think that maybe this particular sort of Spidey Exiles take was beginning to wear a little thin when I started this. And then it became all about Electro. And I found myself a little movie tie-in, I guess, by it being Electro and not getting to look at Jamie Foxx, right? If it's going to be Electro, it should be Jamie Foxx. So I mean, I, as if you're doing a multiversal one, one of the main ones can't be Jamie Foxx. Are you kidding me? That just seems really inconsiderate yeah, of me. me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
I think that we're still looking at a take on something's going world to world, killing spiders, but a bunch of electros is not as interesting as things that eat spiders in the night. I'm not trying to say that in any way I don't connect with this series because ultimately there's a lot to really like. I think the setup was an unfortunate setup for Mike Costa to inherit. Now, I think David Baldon really shines here. There's places that I get a little head trippy, but you know, when we're talking about a book that is travel to vast, ever-changing landscapes, the artist is the one doing a lot of the brutal lifting. Not that the writer isn't responsible for a significant amount of shaping the narrative and the value and the way it all looks, but that the artist is the one doing the work to make sure that it's never out of sync. And that's a lot on David, where he did an incredible job. He really did. It's so funny having such a familiarity with his work lately, especially because of books like X Factor that just really invigorated the X line. Seeing an earlier form that I wouldn't say in any way is less polished or anything like that. Like this is not like an artist getting his start, but it's just interesting seeing something that is so recognizable, but noticeably different than where it is in something like X Factor where I'm really used to seeing. So overall, I do want to say that the big picture look at the way these spider characters would interact is a really interesting statement on something that I don't know that I got. I don't know that I got this much personality from the spider characters until this particular arc, but I feel like it must have been in like a story bible somewhere that it was like, oh yeah, this one's like this and that one's like that. While I think there is a lot to be mined from individual small exchanges and little personal moments that for first time readers, most will slip through the cracks. You'll find one or two that you like and then you'll build them up over rereads. I don't have the luxury of several rereads when it's a major crossover like this and I, you know, like Spider-Verse. And so I feel as though I'm kind of coming into this at a bit of a disadvantage because I never really connected with the characters before this and it's like Mike Costa really knew what I was going through and worked to flesh out the characters here in a way that made me glad for Secret Wars Spider-Verse because even though I didn't love that miniseries, I'm walking away thinking that maybe at least Mike Costa has a much stronger connection to these characters now, which is part of where their voices are all so unique and strong in this book. I think also one of the things that really took me by surprise was that it's this same core team in this amazing Spider-Man issue, with the exception of, I guess, in this one, we're kind of missing Anya. But then when we get into Web Warriors, we throw Anya and Mayday into the mix. And we don't add a ton otherwise, but it's interesting that here they are not necessarily part of the formula that we're kind of trying to introduce new readers to get into this. They did manage to get some one-fourth of the people that read the introduction story over to Web Warriors number one, and then, you know, a sort of tragic half of that to continue on. Pretty rough number there. But early on, what I get from Web Warriors is, I think, meant to be a generally light good time. Again, the inheritors are so much more frightening than a bunch of Electros, and I'm not like, oh, Electro sucks. It's just like, he's not that lethal against Spider-Man on his own all that often, so outside of fucking beefy-ass Jamie Foxx, he's just kind of like another shocker guy or, you know, any number of them. So I enjoy the kind of conventions of this book that for whatever reason they can't build a danger room. Multiverse technology, but you can't put a dummy up on a stick. Mm. So 
the non-lethal training gauntlet that they use that one world for really works for me and it allows the art team to show off right away when they start issue one that the art team is ready to deliver something very visual and i think ready to deliver something that taps into the spider-man mythos in a way that is not just references to other versions of spider-man we know existing but like really we can ape those styles and turn it into something that is a more engaging reference than just we swear the plot is telling you that there's multiversal spice and one of the things that they make sure to do right away is establish a team dynamic and while i don't think they exactly remember these events in from secret wars spider-verse i feel like there is a thread of trust that is existent that having that kind of unremembered adventure allows me to imprint on them which is kind of nice i love the early on slam on x oh my god charles xavier is a fucking widow collector (laughs) what the fuck was that mike costa get on an x book right now i love how spider-man noir can always be relied upon to say the most horrible thing amongst the group in a way that is one part amusing one part offensive and it allows the thing to get said but for everybody to also have that like you are the worst moment he's a great character to use for that and he plays some really interesting role throughout this whole series some of which i think just doesn't get paid off due to cancellation yeah but i love that mayday comes in right away and she's like hey my world has a spider woman me me and so i gotta go and you are all children (laughs) and like not really but she is a little bit momming them so i think the only thing that i didn't love about like the mayday exchange and then leading into the conversation with like that is spider gwen like that is the spider gwen the night gwen the night spider that the the good night spider good night gwen whatever her name is that's her like that's the one who also has a series at this same time i start to feel a little bit like maybe you could have done another one of them or something because this feels a little burnout on this one character who the fuck is she multiversal wolverine but i thought that the two mayday scenes back to back did not fit the plotting quite as well you know i absolutely agree about the plotting i just was so excited to get this much mayday not written by tom defalco not drawn by ron friends this is one of those moments that i was saying we needed this whole time and we got one with that original Deimos fight in Edge of Spider-Verse and I was so excited because not only did we get this thing but like this huge life-changing thing happened where unfortunately Peter Parker dies but oh my god we're moving forward we're seeing a change for Mayday we're getting action that she's not trying to hide from Moose and Courtney like it's happening and to revisit that moment was for me there was a sense of catharsis there was really that sense of okay we can do this we can take these next steps and the fact that she has a really distinct personality here that she is somebody who would say something like I actually am my universe's Spider-Woman and I've got responsibilities but then also at the same time to just go have lunch with a friend who knows that she's Spider-Woman is what I've been looking for this whole time and she has a really cool look to her I was so excited about this that I think 
think I forgot to be critical. And I don't mind you not being critical because I also wanted that same thing. And hearing that we'd wanted it since day one from someone else, I'm like, yeah, yeah, okay. And now I see the value of this scene in a really tremendous way. It's always fun learning stuff on air because then you kind of have to adjust your notes as you go, right? Uh, But I love coming to realize that May isn't trying to not be Spider-Woman. She's just trying not to be multiversal Spider-Woman if she doesn't have to be. And I think that's the key thing. One of the things that we got so tired of with early Mayday and early Spider-Woman is how often is she going to run away from being a superhero? But I think here she's just trying to run to the superhero she wants to be. And that's kind of really cool. I think it's great that we are no longer getting internal monologue from May or we're not getting it right now. I think maybe we had some overload because now there's a billion different ways to look at her motivations and what's going on in her head. We can headcanon it right now and that's awesome. We, we get to speculate. In the future, somebody else who writes this can have a really specific idea of, you know, she just, she really didn't like the multiverse. After what happened with her father, the one thing that she wants is not to engage with multiversal stuff. That just like messed her up. Or it can be that it really is exactly as she said. She's just kind of busy and this is a little too much and there's plenty of them and there's not enough her in her world. So she's just going to kind of cut out. I love her casual language about all this. This is all old hat to her now. She's been through the entire multiverse. She went and picked up an Uncle Ben. Like she's, this is nothing special, but she also has stuff to do at home. So I got to take care of that. I love picturing now that May has, even if she's maybe technically not any older, she has matured significantly since the moment that we left her before Edge of Spider-Verse happened. And it hasn't, all the maturing has not happened with so much focus on every single thing that she's thinking. So now there's options for how she matured and what she was thinking when she made certain decisions. And it's just really exciting to me. I'm really glad you brought up Uncle Ben because in in my mind, <laughs> if I could have sort of whatever I want, I think I would like like prime grade A beef Richard Berge at like the top of his game playing Uncle Ben. I just really want some like thick dilf meat uh, behind that character. What we get is occasionally uneven. I feel like I don't really have a sense of what this Uncle Ben looks like across all of the different iterations. Sometimes it's a little rough and sometimes he is a handsome older gentleman and sometimes he's kind of hot, right? So we see a really dynamic spread of the character and any of them would be acceptable. He's an old man who's been through a lot. Let him be old. It's just nice when he's handsome. But I think the coolest thing is that he has had the exact same voice no matter who wrote him. For a character that doesn't appear a lot, everyone sure knows how to write Uncle Ben. And I wonder if that's a function of the motivations behind the character and the fact that he's kind of the ultimate good that is so good that he can't exist in the regular continuity. We got an exception with this one and he's still going to have that same gravitas, but it's simple. Like the motivations are really simple. He's just going to be an all around good guy. You can't follow him for a whole book because there's not enough conflict, but you can have him in moments. You can have him show up to help save the day because he's just that good guy. Now, one of the things that I think worked the best for Web Warriors that really paid off was putting the women right in the heart of the action right away. Spider-Man has always had the word man in it, which I find damning. I even think X-Men having men in it is really damning. I would love the mutants or some, you know, M people. They're moving on up um, and you're moving on out. So, and all of a sudden, Liv and Joy is back and Janice re 
records Dreamer. Everything's great. But I find myself glad that the Age of Spider women has been so fulfilling and how few of them have had their gender tied to their identity. Not because I believe that that inhibits a character, but I don't think there's any reason to define a woman by woman when there's so few men who get defined that way. You don't see a whole lot of Spider Woman Man running around. It's because so many women have like, you know, also Domino Man. Uh, I'm not Jubilee Man. Uh, I'm not crazy about it. Um, um, though I'm really into Monet Man. <laughs> the closer you get to him, the worse it is. So the ability for Mayday to have not shown weakness in losing track of Spider-Gwen, but it was, an, you know, it was an ambush and she still, you know, was in the costume. She was ready to go. I really liked that. That really hit what I was looking for. It's, I feel a little bit selfish because there are so many great characters in this that I almost wish that there, I'm, I, and I should say, I worry at times that that classic comic book trope of there's too many women so we only can spotlight one and the other ones kind of have to fade in the background. I was increasingly worried that that would happen to May and that by Spider-Gwen having such a presence, somebody would decide that means by default that May can't have as much of a presence and I really do feel like Mike Costa balanced things very well. I do think it is heavier on other characters besides Mayday, but I don't think that is a function of her gender or the gender of any other characters. I think, unfortunately, that is a function of Mayday sort of having lost the popularity that she once had, and that a character like Spider-Gwen really taking over the reins in terms of a young woman who is Spider-Man who people are interested in following. Yeah, and I think that's why Spider-Gwen has a really clear main character narrative throughout this book. I just, wait, was the electric monster Otto from that world right that's what they were trying to say i honestly was very confused about that part same I thought from what I was reading that it was not an auto. It was a an Electro who was very smart, but like in some other... Oh, he wasn't successful. Wasn't that what it was? So he got to another universe that had a successful one and he took over the resources there and then he just kept building them up and they enslaved the autos. It was, it, it was a lot. And I, I liked five issues of this Electro story. I think the level of detail that we got into about it and going another six issues with it was maybe a bit overkill on the electro part I, I there's a lot more i would have been interested in seeing from this team spider-man has such a rogues gallery that going to somebody else would have made some sense for me and even had we not done that getting so in depth about electro's completely byzantine nonsense plan maybe was time i feel like could have been spent on literally anything else yeah and there were things that was like oh my god all of these electros banned together are they going to become their own totem like the spirit of lightning and then is karn going to eat them and like i was just, oh and that snuffed them out and like you know so now they can't do that but they can do something else like i thought we would go there or we just kind of dilly-dallied around the point and i wonder if that's because this title was never allowed to do stuff we knew that spider geddon would become not we did but like you know editorial did and you know dan slot is such a big picture kind of guy look at how he paid off stories after 20 years so i think the ultimate concern that i had was 
could this book really do enough to keep moving things along? I got my answer with issue two, where we saw like eight pages dedicated to the Electro backstory. And it became pretty clear this was more of a character piece than something that was going to be very plot drivey. In the X books right now, you never know what book is going to completely push the story forward. But this was not going to be that one. However, I did love Spider-Gwen's, you know, nonstop awesome. I was a little confused because there had been that lady steampunk spider backup story in the previous issue that didn't get followed up here. Of course, I ultimately came to find it's in the next issue. And I just wasn't sure why that like map of the spider characters was in the back of the book. Yeah, when you kind of add all the details together, it feels like this might have been one of those ones where even before they even knew what the sales figures were, they decided this probably wasn't going to be a thing. Let's have some fun while we're here. But no, we will not be doing 36 issues of this and really expanding on the spider exiles concept, which when you put it like that, and when I read this, I really am pretty interested in, especially if it involves Mayday. But if it is just running out its own clock and not really able to invest in building up this engine of multiversal spider exploration, then I'm I'm very here for the ride in terms of just having fun, but it does make it a little difficult to invest in the potential of the book or of each of the characters. Because there was really only one star, Spider-Gwen, at least initially, because in the third issue, I was really pleased to see Anya and Karn. They really held down against those Electros, and I was really glad when we saw the Benji and Uncle Ben thing, and Uncle Ben fucking saves himself. God damn, that was so hot. It was so and good. It was so good because he like goes full spider mode and he's like, <laughs> I'm okay. Like, it's just so good. Oh, I loved it so much. I really like that like Uncle Ben is like, no, I'm Uncle Ben to all the spider people. Yeah, he just takes Anya, who is not even from that universe, and lets her go and study at his house. <laughs> I loved it. I was a really big fan. I was pleased as punch. This is the kind of thing I want. Um, You know, community, found family, big fan of it all. And the only thing that I thought was a little hard was as much as I like, you know, steampunk lady spider, I found that a harder journey to follow. You know, she's just not a character that I, I connect with, though I think she looks really cool. And I get her. It's it, I hit like a saturation point of one too many spider people. There's the one too many spider people aspect. There is, I mean, this is, I think, always going to be something Marvel has a little bit of trouble with. By this point, we are kind of, in terms of the zeitgeist, we're a little bit past where steampunk is still a cool new idea that we're not sure exactly what to do with and we've hit a big oversaturation point where there's now been a little too much steampunk so that this is the point at which we decide to really do a steampunk spider person i think we're maybe five years too late but the concept is still cool enough that visually you know for for eight pages in the back or a couple quick references even if it's a little past its prime sure that's still really cool to see it's cool to think about how she would make her spider legs and all that but she becomes such a central character for the rest of this to go forward and it just feels like she becomes a central character because you guys it's steampunk spider girl you gotta be into this right and i can't just accept that because it's cool and especially when they're like you're not even a spider totem you're literally just some lady it i again i feel like mayday give it to mayday she's here she has so much history she's so tied to this don't do steampunk spider lady give it to mayday and it doesn't feel like anybody 
wants to but me and me 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 yes (laughs) anybody on the writing team so but now i just need to say that i've gotten some cool fucking surprises (laughs) i sat down to a book that i thought was going to be predominantly my hanging out with spider girl and being really attracted to juggernaut and then i'm like rena and black tarantula changed my life (laughs) and so who could have known that that's what i was getting from spider and i have experienced things in comics that i just never saw coming you know daredevil's echo is now phoenix the world is crazy (laughs) and now i have to sit here and say my favorite young avenger of all time is octavia otto who is the like velma of the scooby-doo world has walked into the marvel comic universe and she is fabulous and she is played by esther pavitsky in a hideous bowl cut and it is she is an unbelievably exquisite character. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing I thought about with her is they spent how many hundreds of issues drawing Mayday's best friend as this kind of chubby, homely, like they went out of their way so often to make Courtney seem like just such a loser physically. And you have Octavia who is a similarly, like she's kind of short, she's a little stout, but she is proof that you it doesn't matter your body shape as long as the artist thinks you're cool you're cool and the she contrast is so cool exactly she is so cool and she, it just made me think of courtney immediately because it was so obvious that nobody ever thought courtney was cool and we were just getting this character who they were like she's chubby must be the dork and octavia is like some people are short and chubby and are still the fucking coolest person in the room she just defies every comic stereotype that we know in the real world isn't true but comics make so hard to see so frequently and then there's sort of the inherent othering of but you're special because you're fat right (laughs) like you know i grew up 300 pounds i was gonna say we were both chubby kids like this is coming from a place of experience yeah as a morbidly obese person who was told you have a heart condition and you are really stressing your heart you will die if you don't lose weight like and then that's how i got into fitness and you know i i really remember people saying you're so handsome if only you weren't so fat or like you're so good looking for a fat guy or my favorite was wow yeah how'd you get that guy over there your boyfriend he's so fit oh wow um mm, it's because he's seen me throw a punch would you like to see it (laughs) and it's just you get so and so anytime a comic book writer is like not like i'm here to defy your stereotypes i'm not going to acknowledge them by creating a character that doesn't care about those stereotypes or breaking them who just celebrates her own fantasticness and she she is amazing. I just think this character for the next, you know, six issues that she's in that I've read, because hopefully there's more that I can find. She's cool. She's just really cool. She is like nerd girl Kate Bishop Hawkeye cool. And I am taken because I'm not a, you know, an octopus person. And, uh, you know, I'm I, I'm a young Avengers person depending on the run. Um, so, you know, I really liked that run of Guardians of the Galaxy that was clearly just gayer young Avengers. <laughs> with more gays doing gay stuff <laughs> but I'm challenged by how cool this character is and that 
she is like trapped in this book that people don't know about. One of the things, she's just a cool character. She's an Octavius, so she is obviously going to be very smart and have auto stuff. And like, I think Dr. Octopus is a cool enough character that I can be into it with the right twist. But the big thing is you love to see a hero come out of nowhere who you just get from moment one is good, is one of the good guys. Not in this, like, I am unbreakably good. I never do anything naughty, but just, I'm one of the heroes. I'm here to help. It makes a character seem so cool when they just seem effortlessly like a hero. And that is what you get from this character immediately. And that's also, like, the hard vibe that Billy gives off. So I really do love most of these spider people. Noir is, okay, he's probably my least favorite, but I so totally dig Pavater. I really love the energy I get from all of the spider women in this story. And Billy, spider, you can, um, oh, I'm fine with Spider-Ham. I don't care. Spider-Ham, <laughs> Spider-Ham has been a big ask for this entire thing since Edge of Spider-Verse. And I feel like we all deserve kind of a pat on the back for just constantly going, okay, we, we will <laughs> act like he's, <laughs> like he deserves to be a part of this. And it's not a one-off joke that has gone on for dozens of issues. For dozens of decades. So, um, that's hundreds and twenties of years. So, uh, I really am happy with Billy because I've had occasion to talk about how we've been talking about Captain Britain on this show since the fourth episode of X's for podcast. This is going to be like 380 something. And we have been covering Captain Britain's adventures since the 1970s, since our fourth episode. And I was always kind of worried that when I finally got to Spider UK that I would be like, "Mm -mm, can't do it. But he's totally the right kind of character. He gives a fucking Churchill speech at the end of this issue. That's pretty British. And he gives me what I want from a Captain Britain while also looking good in the Spidey suit. And he seems just full of himself enough to be a Captain Britain because that's like, you know, trait number three. It's like brave. It's trustworthy. It's really willing to capsplain everything to everyone around you like they've never been in a fucking war before, but you're already leading an army, you dumbass. So I think he serves on all three levels. I really do love Billy. I guess the idea of Billy is so opens up such a can of worms to me that I sometimes have trouble looking away from said can of worms to just enjoy the character. If he is a Spider-Man of his universe and a Captain Britain, is there, what's that overlap? (laughs) What is he going to do in the Starlight Citadel? What's, the mechanics are curious to me. Is that, you know, does he just keep in the place safe from all the Starlight ants? Like, also, is there a Betsy in the mix? I immediately need to know about that. None of this, none of this needs to be explained. Spider lock? Yes, man. That's exactly what I'm saying. Oh my God. And then he's still just monarch. Yes. Oh no, yes. I need this so bad. Oh my God, it's so good. I, look, I don't, I don't regret saying that I will never reread most of this in my life. I don't regret that. And I'm so grateful to Marvel Unlimited for making this a possibility for me that I don't have to buy it. I was going to say, imagine if we'd had to buy this. If I had to buy those what ifs, I'd have lost my shit. So I actually happen to own them uh, to be totally real. They're in my vast collection that I inherited from my father. I'm very lucky. So it made the what ifs a little bit easier too but I love the idea I love the excitement I love when people 
people are excited about possibilities. It's just kind of a slog because not all of the possibilities execute at the same frequency. And anyone who has ever tried to play along to the album version of Been Around the World by Lisa Stansfield can tell you that when a song is recorded in a slightly different frequency, you just can't make it work with what you're doing. And that's kind of what's happening here. And it's actually really well illustrated by David Baldon's beautiful art that can show different styles. I get what they're going for is a really beautiful chaos. But sometimes the bridge in Ed Hardcourt's Beneath the Heart of Darkness really is just the sound of a fucking chainsaw. That was a fantastic simile. (laughs) Thank you for knowing Beneath the Heart of Darkness. (laughs) So, I mean, I, I have to agree. And it's the thing I said before, which if you give me this first arc and it's multiversal electros, maybe not the strongest start to a series ever, but a Spider-Man classic. If we're doing multiversal Spider-Man, we'll do one of the multiversal rogues gallery. Sure, totally. That we end the arc and it's really only half an ending and it's a to be continued and there's so much more to do with this rather than really just having them defeat the multiversal electros by issue five and then we pick up a new arc where other stuff can happen. That is, um, that was tough for me. I, it, and to me, that was where I kind of realized that there was maybe not going to be the investment in the sustainability of this idea that I was hoping there would be. Yeah. It became very clear to me that they probably were told you're getting to some short issue, don't get too excited. And by the end of this arc, there's definitely some rain it in, rain it in. You know, it's always important to manage expectations. And when everything looks good at the race and you've promised a really good match and clearly you're falling behind early on, maybe it is just better to cut your losses. And that leaves Mike Costa and David Baldon and all of the incredible other creators on this team and there's just too fucking many to name them all each time. (laughs) An opportunity to save those cool ideas for another project where they deserve to be used and celebrated instead of falling into the disrepair of 15,000 copies a book. So I would on the whole say that the ending where Mayday and Billy get trapped in a universe together that doesn't doesn't result in them creating a baby (gasps) is a big bummer but I guess guess that would be fucking her British dad. But would it? I mean maybe. I don't think so. Because that's the thing is I think he is a Braddock. He's not a Parker. Like he's not even, I don't think he has Parker DNA, but is called a Braddock. And that's, that's where this all gets so confusing. All right. All right. So here's what, you're right. Here's what I'm going to say. All right. Um, I'm going to give this, this miniseries. Well, nope. This arc. I'm going to give this arc an honest B minus, but I want to give it the award for most congenial and most interested to see where the creative team goes. Now, ultimately we know that's X Factor and then back to Spider-Man for some other incredible work over on Sinister War, but I feel as though the book is more likable than it is successful. That is a really perfect evaluation. It is more likable than it is successful. I completely agree with that. And if I'm really, you know, I said I'm too excited to be critical. If I were not too excited to be critical, it probably, yeah, it is a B minus. For me, the investment in May is so important and so necessary to my understanding of the eventuality in which this character moves into mainline continuity, which I'm sticking to my guns that that's going to be a thing one day. I The relief I feel at seeing somebody else write Mayday, seeing them give her a voice that feels more mature, more grown, more deserving of, you know, it's the thing we said at the start of all this. May feels like she's aged, like the experience 
experiences of her lifetime, the many experiences that we followed, have led to a character that is older than the one that we started with in 1998. And that is something that I don't know that at the end of Spider-Man or Spider-Girl the end, I don't know that I really felt that way about Mayday. So seeing this other person get to write her and giving her the maturity of voice, also having another artist draw her, giving her a look that if I'm being 100% honest, I don't love the look in terms of that's not how I would draw Mayday, but it is really distinct. It's not ugly at all. The art is fantastic. She looks different than I have ever seen her before. And that is something that I've needed as well. When push comes to shove, I don't think there's anything totally groundbreaking about what she does, but we were so far removed from getting these moments of May under somebody else's pen and pencil that this is just, we're doing catch-up work to get her to a place where other creative hands can add to her topography and make a new character out of one that has been static for so long. So that to me is just, in in, in that regard, I want to give the work that was done for May like an AA minus. There's not a ton of it, which makes sense because there's so much else going on in this book, but the fact that somebody cared is uh, really important to me and I just think now that I'm seeing this, I feel like, okay, we can go from here. We can do more from here. And it is exciting to me. Okay, so before we get too far into Web Warriors 6 through 11, finishing out the series, very excited, super cool, I want to take a minute just to talk about a character that I feel like we have given an unfair treatment in terms of how much spotlight we've put on him. Now, Pavatir is one of the most interesting members of this Age of the Many Spiders for me personally. And TK, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but did you know that Pavatir was actually created by an entirely Indian creative team? I did not. Tell me more. Okay, so I'm really excited about this because this is actually exactly when I worked at this comic shop that it was coming out in America. Now, Spider-Man India, as it was originally published in America, was worked on by the Gotham Studios Entertainment Group. Now, Gotham Studios were responsible for a bunch of colors on Spider-Girl. So this is still in that family. This is still working with that same Spider-Girl creative team in many ways, which is incredible. Now, it actually takes Spider-Man and doesn't just give us an Indian Spider-Man, which is such lip service, but instead we saw Shahad Devarajan, Jeevan Kong, Shires Sitherman, Javon Kang, and Dave Sharp. Now, admittedly, Dave Sharp is the American letterer, kind of gives it away with the very American white name. But the rest of that creative team were responsible for this incredible four-issue series that would then come over to America in 2005. Now, it was actually created in many ways by Satyajit Ray, who was a significant Indian director who had had a significant chance meeting with Stan Lee. Admittedly, unfortunately, we lost Ray in 1992, so he never got to enjoy the labors of his creation of an Indian Spider-Man meant for India. But there's little changes, like he actually meets a yogi who gives him the powers of a spider, not gets bit by a radioactive spider. He actually doesn't help a woman who is being mugged, which results in his uncle being killed. There's 
some very major changes. But the big thing that I remember was like reading this when I worked at that comic shop. I was just like, yeah, this actually, I grew up in a town with a very strong Indian population. And I was in classes with a lot of really awesome Indian kids. And I just remember when I worked at that comic shop thinking, man, this is the kind of shit that they said they literally needed to care about the comics I was reading all the time. And I would be like, yeah, no, you got to read this. And they'd be like, yeah, when they care about me, I'll care about them. And this was exactly what they would have wanted. And I just remember feeling so fulfilled by that. Getting to come back to this character many years later fills me with joy and excitement. Yeah, that is really cool. I did not know any of that. I love seeing creative teams from cultures that are underrepresented in comics get to go all out and create characters. And more than that, I love to see when those characters become part of the wider Marvel canon and are something that we can all enjoy. The other, you know, it's slightly different in that it's not a big name like Spider-Man getting a different version, but Swordmaster and Arrow being created for Chinese markets and then Swordmaster being translated, well, both comics being translated into English and then Swordmaster continuing on uh, a little more than Arrow. Arrow is definitely part of the 616 universe, but not as much. And now Swordmaster is Iron Fist. And I just, I think he's an incredible character and I love that for people who feel underrepresented in comics, not just that they get to see characters that they can identify with and that look like them or have similar backgrounds, but that the teams involved in the creation of those characters also have similar backgrounds and that we get characters that aren't just appeasement characters, but an attempt at bridging that gap, I think is really cool. And just to point out, this is not the first time that we've seen the character model of Spider-Man from Spider-Man India be imported into our media on this side of things as he was once included in a Spider-Man video game, Spider-Man Unlimited, which was a game loft game that had been available on mobile, had like 30 million downloads and got shut down in March 2019. Disappointingly, it shut down without any resolution to its storyline. And when you think about like the time that that was coming out, it's sort of shocking. They would shut down a like a multiversal Spider-Man game, but ultimately it included an unbelievable number of very exciting characters, not the least of which are Spider-Girl, Spider-Ham, Spider-Man 2099, and of course, Spider-Man India. And by the way, that is Mayday Parker. That is Spider-Girl, Mayday Parker, was in a video game that was discontinued before we started this project. That's just unfair. Yeah, it's pretty devastating. And it's one of those things where when a game is shut down, it's just gone. So like, you can't go back to it. Right. Right. We got to hope that somebody on Minecraft has way too much time. So to dial into this book and perhaps a surprising issue, if for no other reason, I feel like Web Warriors winds up in that way too many creatives category. Mike Costa, David Baldon, Walden Wong, Terry Pallet, Scott Hanna, Matt Yaki, Rochelle Rosenberg. And that's just the traditional artists. Of course, there's art in the lettering by VCs Joe Carmagna. There's a cover artist. It just sort of starts to feel like for a book that was kind of meant to be this like little magic slice of a thing going on, there's so many cooks, too many cooks. It's a little out of control. Yeah. And I do think that it's not even so much that the book doesn't have a visual identity. It's just that the visual identity that it has is a little too 
too... I want to say, like, the first thing I want to say is cartoony, but even setting that aside, because I can enjoy a cartoony book, I guess it just feels like there is an acceptable amount of chaos going on in the art that makes it difficult to ground yourself in the story. And that paired with the fact that the story, where we had a really solid first arc that only the only time Siren started going off in my head is at the end where you realize that the arc is not closed out. It's left on so many cliffhangers that we're going to have to deal with and probably bring the villain back that even though it ends in a way that could tie everything up if you just made two or three slight adjustments, the fact that it doesn't make those make those adjustments means that we are getting the next arc being really tied to the first one. And this was a story that really needed to take another step, move forward, do a hard left. And so between the really kind of cartoony art and the fact that we're a little stuck on a story that is just a little bit underwhelming, it just winds up not when you pick up in issue six, we don't have the same impact I think that I had even going into issue one. And I think it's for that reason that the lack of impact is maybe what led this book to its ultimate conclusion. It has sort of a Marvel team up feel, but it's so focused on the spiders gathering more spiders. And when I think about Spider-Verse, you know, I think about the family trying to eat spiders. I want Morlin and Deimos and don't really have them here. In some ways, it feels like this was a bit more of just like a character vehicle for a number of the spiders they were hoping they could continue to sort of like milk for what they're worth, not to be, you know, perhaps um, jaded. But I feel like by issue six, this title is sort of set up for failure, not because the team doesn't do a great job, but it just doesn't feel like it can go somewhere with the overwhelming reality of Dan Slott was running Spider-Man and they weren't going to let some side book overtake the main amazing narrative. I'm somebody who actually kind of enjoys a proving ground book where I, I feel like you're seeing a lot of characters and you know some of them are really going to be beloved and other ones are really going to kind of fall by the wayside. I guess where my heart sort of sunk with this one was in the reveal that, oh, now just like we did a universe full of shockers, now we're doing all these Venoms and it just feels like Spider-Man beats but numerically more of them. That was fine for one arc with Electro. Again, sew it all up at the end and do a completely different arc and that arc isn't Spider-Man beats but more of them and I could have gotten really into it. But as soon as I saw all the Venoms, it did make me lose faith that we were going to get what makes the Spider-Verse interesting. And I was happy to get a little bit of time to focus on Spider-Man Noir. He is a character that I, I do kind of like in terms of this. I don't think I'll ever like track him down and read all the Spider-Man noir books. But you know, when he comes up in a book I'm already reading where I want to read him, yeah, that's engaging. I'm in. But I would I don't know. This just wasn't where my heart was. He's a great character because he's a garbage dude, and part of that is just because he comes out of a hard-boiled detective novel, and putting him as a Spider-Man against all the other great spider people is a good, it's a funny beat. We talked about this previously. It just he's not like a bad guy. He doesn't do anything that is so offensive that you're like, this this should actually be a villain. But he does just like say stuff that you're like, oh, this is gross. And it just makes everybody else seem more enjoyable and identifiable by default. While also it allows you to kind of laugh at how tropes of fiction that came before really are outdated. Yeah. And I think Spider-Man Noir also lends himself better to short stories because of all of the things you just said. Yeah, for sure. And 
And there's that moment where he like pockets the symbiote where I'm like, well, that's got to go somewhere. And then it like willfully doesn't in like a spiteful way. And I'm not sure what to do with that. But the other thing that I really wasn't sure what to do with, you know, again, when there is a beautiful product in play, right? I'm never confused as to why perhaps when there is like some really good idea that everybody wants to be a part of, you know, it's not hard to understand that a writer would want to dial into that because it's a really good time and hopefully it can improve book sales. But I do not accept that this is the same Spider-Gwen that's running around Spider-Gwen because this is just like there's other toys play with other toys. It feels like this is a lot of focus on a character who's getting a lot of focus elsewhere. I think you make a good point. If this is kind of a proving ground for the other characters, she's already proved and there are so many people that it's not as though she is leading the book and taking on a star role. She's kind of almost getting relegated to the back and it does just feel a little bit like she's there just to be there. Which is the same problem with May, which is the same problem in some ways with Aranya. There's a little too much going on that's not going on while I'm trying to keep track of the stuff that is going on. I think as soon as you know the Electro's prison is broken at the end of six, death knell for the book. Yeah, which is unfortunate because it comes with one of my favorite panels in the history of the book, which is Mayday in like traditionally dude garb that is Spider-Man colored talking to Billy Braddock in in his universe that is housing the Electro's prison. It's just this one really small panel. You barely see May, but I love that that is how she decided to dress in this world. Yeah, it's that sort of thing that we're always saying we wanted for Mayday, which is getting to see her make decisions outside of the scope of being Peter Parker's daughter. Not that she is not still some version of Peter for the sake of the argument, but she just wants to look like a fox hunting dandy. And I think she looks great as a fox hunting dandy. And it really feels like the idea of that decision for the Mayday that we experienced under Tom DeFalco for so long excites me because it's that thing of somebody else got to write the character and they did one note. Who knows? I don't I don't know if this was maybe not even the writer, but the artist who decided that it would it would be this. But it tells you so much about May that she didn't go into this like old for her, what would be an old timey world and think, I can't wait to put on the biggest, frilliest dress they have. She found like a really cool waistcoat and overcoat and like nice slacks and threw on a Spider-Man themed suit outfit. I just think that tells me more about who Mayday is and who she has grown into than like the last 25 issues of Spider-Girl were able to. And it just, it's it's the thing I have said throughout this, which is that those are the things that get me really excited because I do love the character so much. You know, and I'm with you because I also really have specific affection for specific characters like Mayday and like Billy Braddock. I've really connected with them and I feel like a bigger fan of them than ever. I don't love Spider-Punk. I don't really understand how Spider-Gwen can just like fuck off to MC2 to hang out with Uncle Ben. Like, is the multiverse that fluid right now? I don't understand. This is post-Secret Wars. How are we reality hopping so comfortably? I genuinely resent Spider-Ham 2099. Yeah, that, that really is like a bridge too far moment. It just goes a little, a little off the rails for me 
at that point. I am definitely a fan of the work on this title, but this last arc feels particularly unfocused at times and often like it's panicking to achieve its storytelling. Not that the creative team didn't do a terrific job understanding the bigger picture of what it was trying to tell, but I feel as though the mania of doing the job of this book, so many spiders, so many new spiders, interesting characters like Octavia, there just isn't room for everything. Every issue would have needed to be 32 pages with an eight-page backup focusing on one of these characters' original backstory so we can have an idea of what we're reading. It's not that the book that I'm reading isn't a good job. It's that the book that I'm reading doesn't have the necessary room to be the book it deserves to be. Yeah, this almost needs to be like a a system. If we are introducing multiversal spider people and we want to really delve into that, then it's more than just a book that delves into the spider people. It is a whole system of how they get introduced, what kind of stories get told. Maybe it's more of an anthology series. That's a really simple way to simplify this, but it is difficult to just put all the characters in one book in one continuing story. It really does not end in issue five. Um, And, you know, then to add more characters and like 2099 versions of characters that are versions of Spider-Man is just, it's a bit much. And I think Spider-Ham 2099 really is an example of that excess in which now other characters are not going to get as much page time and we're going to understand even less about them because we're throwing another version of Spider-Ham into the mix. And that's even like part of my confusion, I think. We have so many versions of Spider-Ham and then this one even requires its own additional character in Doctor Doom 2099. Which I'm... is like, it, that's, now we're getting into like, uh, is this, are we doing a humor comic? Yeah, I just feel like we go one too far at some point and it really doesn't work for me at times. I have no negative about the narrative they worked to tell, but I have a little bit of trouble interacting with, again, what I'm just going to keep calling sort of the mania of this book, where it's just kind of nonstop that new thing, new thing, new thing, new thing. And I'm not complaining in any regard about that. You know, that idea, that storytelling style, the creative team even did a really great job with it, but the book doesn't have the room for it. The book doesn't have the room for it. And I guess even though I completely agree, it's a totally valid style. And I think I would really enjoy it. The reason why I end up having a lot of trouble here is because characters like Octavia Otto come up and I really get interested in them and then immediately realize that they're not really going to get the page time to shine because we've now just added Spider-Punk. Oh, and then here comes Spider-Man 2099 or Spider-Ham 2099. And meanwhile, we're in this book in the first place because I want to see what's going on with Mayday, who is not in issue seven. So I'm like losing the character that I came here for. That's even one of my notes frequently. Oh, good. This is a Mayday issue. Right. It gets to a point where you do kind of feel shortchanged on the appearances of these characters. Yet right on the cover of number nine, you have Spider-Ham and Spider-Ham 2099 again. And I reached a point in the series where I sort of became desperate for the intro pages. I really needed to read them to understand what was going on. With issue 11, it establishes that Billy and Mayday are stranded with the interdimensional Electros and the Web Warriors accidentally broke the web, trying to save Billy and Mayday. And now we have the army of Electros and they're free. Meanwhile, Karn and Octavia were 
able to kind of like put the web back together but now the spiders don't have their equipment like it's just so much and it's so epic that the container itself relies on those introductions to really support the narrative now that's also a function of a lot of very famous comics like for instance i know a lot of people who need the grant morrison recaps to understand some of new x-men there's things that are never explicitly stated on page that are stated explicitly in the recap that's pretty helpful it's a shame when a good book needs that yeah i will say i love the idea of mayday's house and uncle ben and adults with child with children mary jane as being like kind of like a central hub and hangout spot for spider people yeah you know that's not a particular problem no it's just it's not it's not even problem. i think it's funny it's just it's octavia showing up there that just cracked me up a little bit like after all you and i have been through reading mc2 this character that we fell in love with after like two panels showing up at the house of mayday just to me i got a i got a huge kick out of that um and that is kind of an example of a lot of this where like that's that's a whole thing that i'm really into and i find really funny but it's like i'm kind of wading through the noise to pick out little moments like that that i love yeah because then there's even things like in the you know not to rush too too fast but i just don't understand why it always comes back to when osborne oh yeah just really wasn't necessary i don't know that i get all of the giant spider mech being necessary it's cool but again we're talking about not really having enough room for stuff there's plenty of moments of really awesome female agency i really love seeing spider gwen octavia and mayday each have really cool moments to shine but the web warriors themselves don't really feel like they do anything in this story except kill hot uncle ben why would you why would you do that why would you do why would you do that you just killed peter parker mayday's dad why would you then kill Uncle Ben? It's an unfortunate, like, repetitive cycle. It's where you see the same joke appear in a sitcom three episodes in a row, and you're like, how did they not realize that they're using the same format, even if the words are a little different? How do you not see that that's just maybe a little bit, a beat too close to a beat that just happened? So, just, you know, it's not as effective here as I would have liked. On the whole, this was not the series I wanted to follow up Spider-Verse, and I really liked the creative team, and I am a fan of a bunch of their other work. We've had David Baldion on the show. His pencil work in this is breathtaking. It's just not the book it deserves to be, and they deserved better as creators as well. I agree with that. I'm happy with Scraps at this point. I love what they did with what little time we got to spend with Mayday. I love the character of Octavia. I like. I really love moments on page with Mayday, but also conceptually this gives us another place to go with the character broadly. Like It expands her appeal into the multiverse and now it's much more plausible that we would do like uh, an exiles of earth 982 or a, you know another web warrior story it seems like she's probably not coming up in the spider verse anthology series that is happening right now which is a bummer to me but i just this was a big step forward for mayday as a character and that's exciting so you know, i really appreciate it it's a bummer that the book couldn't 
didn't do what I think it set out to. It didn't have the room to do what I think it set out to do. But it's something I think we are pretty used to seeing in comics at this point. So it wasn't really a surprise. It's just, uh, it's unfortunate. You're right. It's a fantastic creative team. And they really did do a great job. I look forward to seeing the impact this book has on future readership. One of the things we love to talk about is the ways that like subtle little background things pop back up, especially pointing out things like Spider-Man India and other really exciting ways in which Spider-Verse interpolated previous canon. I would like to think that these pages will someday influence another writer. They don't have to be the world's greatest issues to have that promise that we're always talking about, that impact, you know, especially with what we're going to look at next week where we talk about Black Tarantula and the child that is Black Tarantula in the MU and the adult that is Black Tarantula in the MU and exactly how those do not have anything to do with Black Tarantula in MC2. It's exciting because you can see where a strand of something became something else and that was all by the same creator, Tom DeFalco to Tom DeFalco, although we are going to also look at a Ned Brubaker issue. I will be very happy to see the ways in which Web Warriors inspires the next generation of spider writers because it has the goods and it has the juice. This just wasn't the vehicle for either thing. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And you know what? If somebody was really inspired by and loved Octavia Otto, I would be so stoked to see her come back in anything. Yeah, I think she'd be a great fit in a Kieran Gillen Young Avengers as well. He would have a lot of fun with a character from another dimension who has super cool, interesting powers and is a riff on another existing character, America Chavez. So I love it. Now, as I mentioned, you know, I don't know that this book was a knockout for me. So I think I kind of got to give this volume in particular a C. Even with the promise it has, I would have probably been frustrated paying $12.99 for this. I like the creators and I would have been really positive on the creators. I also like the editors that, you know, are like, go for it. Use the Spider-Man from Spider-Man India. Use the Spider-Girl from the Spider-Girl MC2 line. Use these characters. I don't always love the corporate nature of comics, which the lower level editors are beholden to from higher ups. Like that's not about the editors whose names are necessarily on this book, but see with a lot of promise. That's how I feel all said and done. Yeah, I think I'm about the same place. I would have maybe given the first arc a B and had the second arc been drastically different, I, I could have seen maybe giving that one a B too and, and enjoying it. But the fact that the first arc is totally fine, good, and then we continue with too much of what happened in that first arc and add more stuff when we kind of needed to focus on what we already had, it just ends up kind of spilling into chaos and that's what really brings stuff down overall for the entire Web Warrior series. But I see with a lot of promise, I think for sure, see that is some moments that are A moments and some moments that are really D, D plus moments. Either way you slice it, there really is some great stuff here. I give everybody a ton of credit. Uh, sometimes it just kind of doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't really pan out. I'm looking forward to seeing some other storylines that we're going to be looking at that go along the same route as what we've been looking at, but hopefully to a bit more success. As mentioned earlier, we're going to take a look at some Black Tarantula around the Marvel Universe next episode. That's going to be Amazing Spider-Man 436, 439, and the released 12 years later, Daredevil Blood of the Tarantula. We're also going to take a look at Asgardians of the Galaxy 1 through 10 before, fuck, we're in Spider-Geddon. Oh my gosh. TK, we only have three episodes of post-MC2 coverage left. You say that, but then we're going to get some surprise drop of some enormous volume of very relevant MC2 stuff like tomorrow and then we're going to have to just keep tacking episodes on. Well, good for us because this has been such an exciting 
and engaging and enjoyable look at what I never thought it would be. I spent a whole lot of time thinking we were going to find this gem that nobody else knew and everyone was going to listen and be like, oh, wow, Spider-Girl is cool. And I think what instead I found is the threads of the hyper commodification of the youth identity of Spider-Man and the ways in which you can exploit that trope across multiple universe lines by forcing Mayday to always exist as the commodified youth version of Spider-Man. She was always held to an earlier standard. Now, because that standard was born of a creator that had worked on the earlier versions of Spider-Man that had never really gotten to dial into childhood Spider-Man, teenage Spider-Man, we saw instead him focus on sort of a pastiche version of Spider-Man through Spider-Girl. And as a result, Spider-Verse helps us see those threads of Spider-Girl even better than before. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think what it marks is the official passage of Mayday from being the daughter of Spider-Girl in a way that really says, what does this tell us about Spider-Man? Into a character that is poised to start telling us stuff about who she is completely on her own. Until we return to take a look at the further adventures of Spider-Girl in her many weird forms, although, again, I don't think next episode Haven has one page of Spider-Girl. That's going to be interesting. TK, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. And of course, continue to find me on Wednesdays and Fridays on this show talking about books new and old. As always, you guys can find me on those days of this show as well. In addition, you can find me over at Nico Action on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. You can check out my original comic work at KidRiotComics.com and in the Young Men in Love anthology recently released featuring some incredible Marvel mainstays. You can also check out more material from this amazing network over at Hubs Plus on YouTube, which is at Hubs Plus Network, where you can check out extended versions of the material on the podcast, original videos, and more. So definitely give that a like and subscribe. And until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Keep it loose, keep slamming heat, Spider-Verse it, Web Warrior it. I mean, we're just, I'm just really here to look at Black Tarantula next week. That is the most exciting part of any given MC2 coverage, isn't it? Because we won't have any Black Tarantula in it, like that Black Tarantula. We're just going to have to like have old images up in the background. We're just going to imagine Black Tarantula's presence. Okay, I like that. And so until we get to imagining that presence all over us, we'll see ya. We'll see you real soon. 